This is Comic Shenanigans episode 902, a conversation with the Uncanny Omar. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 902. It's our conversation with the Uncanny Omar. Uh, you hopefully know Omar from the Near Mint Condition Podcast, or not podcast, uh, YouTube channel. Uh, he does a, a fantastic show. In this episode, we kind of delve into the origins of the show, how it's revamped a couple times, uh, how he originally got into podcasting and then eventually moved over to YouTube, uh, and how that's kind of become his full-time gig. We talk about the uh, origin of him wearing a suit to deliver breaking news on his channel, which has become, I would say, a staple. Uh, uh, I, I mentioned in the podcast that uh, it's a lot like a Pavlovian response now. When I see him in a suit, I know something good is about to happen. Uh, this was a really fun conversation. Omar is fantastic. Uh, you really should check out his videos if you haven't already. Uh, a lot of fantastic content. If you're a big fan of omnibuses and uh, epic collections, you need to go to his channel. Uh, it is a fantastic resource, and he does great collaborations with uh, friends of the show, such as Curtis Finley, um, who does the Epic Marvel podcast, and they collaborate together on breaking new news on uh, upcoming epic collections. So there's a lot of good stuff to enjoy on his channel. There's constantly new content being churned out, and a lot of it is very high quality and very enjoyable. Um, so let's get right into the episode. But before we do, some house cleaning or housekeeping, I should say. Uh, you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Enjoy the episode with the Uncanny Omar. Enjoy. Omar, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm very excited. I'm always t- excited to talk to people who are either, you know, e- talking about comics, and obviously you're a big one in the in the YouTube world. I've talked to other podcasters before. I think you're, I guess you're my first technical, like, YouTuber exclusive co- that I've actually talked to, so this is very exciting for me, because, I mean, I kind of mentioned this off-podcast, but, you know, I, I, I know what you look like. It's one of those weird things where I feel like how people talk, when I've talked to people who have listened to my show, where they're like, I know a lot about you. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of a weird one-way street. It is, but that that's okay. I get it. I get it. Yeah, I guess uh, I've done podcasts before, and it is always interesting because it's a completely different dynamic when whenever you're talking to somebody. For sure. Uh, instead of seeing their faces, you know, face-to-face. But I used to have a podcast years ago, so I'm a little bit of a, yeah, uh, old school. <laughs> Back in 2005, I think, is when we did it. Oh, my God. Yeah, back in the heyday when we thought it was just a fad. Mm-hmm. Boy, we were off. <laughs> what uh, I mean, what what made you kind of jump into the space that early? Because as you said, like that's super early. There aren't many of them. It's hard to even, I guess, for people even to kind of find them. So you know, what kind of led you oh, down man. that path? Uh, my buddy Dan. My buddy Dan was always who was uh, at one time part of this show, and then we've kind of spawned off into a sister channel. But he was always ahead of these things, and I said, "What's a podcast?" <laughs> and he was like, it's like radio, but, you know, it's through iTunes. And I can't even remember the other format. We had a website. And I, I think it was in the fifth episode that I finally understood what a podcast was. And now, you know, it's it's part of, like, a lot of people's lives. A lot of people's drives to work mm-hmm. and things like that are listening to 
uh, podcast. So I think that's pretty cool that they're still around. Because honestly, yeah, for a while I thought this. Well, this is it. Yeah, that was fun. But it lasted. How long did you guys do it initially? Uh, two thousand and five, all the way to two thousand and probably eleven. I think was the last one we recorded. We had kids, and you know, mm-hmm. in, in between that time, we got married. Uh, the people that used to do it, one of us um, moved to California, and now he's working at DreamWorks. So it, oh, got, wow. it all kind of worked out, man. Yeah. yeah. So when when did Near Mint Condition actually kind of come about in its formal kind of the way we know it now? Uh, let's see. So the you, the channel itself started in 2015, I think. Okay. 2016. I can't remember. It's been five years, I think, since... Yeah, it's been five years since we've been on YouTube. However, I changed things up probably about two years ago. I decided to have a rehaul of what the channel should focus on because it kind of became more about the things that I was doing and less about the panel videos so we still did the panel videos from time to time uh and then last year i did a complete rehaul and kind of uh my friends gave me their blessings to continue the channel to do it my way uh because i had lost my job uh, last june mm. after being in it for 20 years it became really difficult just like it was really difficult for everybody to find a job uh during the pandemic it was bad and the only offers i was getting were from companies that were offering me contract work and I have two kids and here you know I'm, where are you out of so I, I'm in uh, Toronto Ontario in Canada just okay. like just like Eric Anthony who you've talked to before oh yeah Eric good guy yeah so unlike Canada we have health care here mm. that we need to pay for so that was one of the things that I was worried about because contract work here in America what I was offered was not uh, part of the package deal was not insurance mm-hmm. so I told my I talked to my wife I looked at our finances and keep in mind this was June when I lost my job and <laughs> October when we looked at everything and I said I think it's possible to do this because if I'm gonna go back to that was the other thing too the only offers I was getting from contract work were for level one positions that I was doing 20 years ago mm. and I'm not you know it's not, it's one of those cases that I'm not above doing that because I gotta I do whatever I need to do to you know make sure my family has food on the table and a roof over our heads but it also became the thing the YouTube channel had been you know the side gig that I was doing for fun no no money at all kind of became a place where oh wait if I switch things up and I focus on this I could be making just as much money as I would if I took one of those level one positions mm-hmm. and it kind of became that we started Patreon in January and kicked it off and here we are man it's been it's been a lot of fun scary ride but a lot of fun I wouldn't I'm glad I did it 20 you know I'm 43 years old and it took a lot for me I mean months of am I doing the right thing questioning myself like I, I am I giving up my career of 20 years being in IT mm. a career that I went to school for I got yeah. I got a degree for to go on YouTube at the age of 43 full-time, that's ridiculous. What kind of madman does that? <laughs> uh, I'm, but, um, a madman can best... make it work. <laughs> oh, my gosh, right? If it fails, and I think one of the biggest things for me was, am I doing the right thing for my kids? Am I showing them that this, like, and my friend, who, who is a really good friend of mine, uh, he's a Catholic priest now, but we used to have a lot of adventures when we were younger. <laughs> <laughs> he was crazy. But... You know, I think he put it one of the best ways possible. He was like, look, 
you are showing your kids that if you try hard enough, you can accomplish, you know, anything in this life. Like, whatever you love, it, you know, it, is that it, you can reach it and if you try hard enough. And I think that's the best lesson you can show your kids. For sure. Did you have, could you ever have a, could you ever have imagined like if you're talking to kind of young Omar that you know you you are part no. of you are part of the the comic book industry you know in your own way like you know the industry is not just the people who make the content it's people who talk about the content who get people to read the content the people who are kind of part of that that extra mechanism especially in this day and age you know you're the modern fanzine right like that's what we are as podcasters yeah. and YouTubers we're part of the, this extension of the industry would you have ever thought that you would have been able to say that to your younger self no like I, I, I swear no no because I think like most people that read comics you know I've been reading comics since I was five six years old like mm-hmm. not, nothing deep but I've been following superheroes right since I was five or six but I was big into comics in my teenage years. I won. I, I lived and breathed comics. If it wasn't comics, it was playing video games. If it wasn't playing video games, I was listening to video game music while I read comics. <laughs> so it, it was one of these things that I think most people at that age, we all wanted to become writers. We all wanted to become comic book artists because that was the life, especially uh, around the time when the image creators walked out of Marvel and we were all like, What? That's insane. They have like a rock life style. Like it's crazy. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean that's what I wanted. I wanted to be a comic book artist. I wanted to write my own comic. I wanted to draw my own comic. I had friends, and we were all like dreaming about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I never thought I would be in this side of of things. You know, working on on this side of fandom, which is I think better. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun, man. Like I have to say, I told my wife, you know, sometimes when I get stressed out, with because there are things that you learn, like you know, being an IT, being a project manager for years, there are certain stresses that come with that. There are certain things that aren't don't don't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, somebody on your team is, is falling behind. Uh, there. are parts of some machinery that haven't come in and you have to roll with the punches and it's stressful here like it's different things like the logistics and analytics of YouTube and learning what works what doesn't work uh, you know having enough time to read having enough time to make the content editing learning new editing techniques th- thumbnails what, what's working what titles aren't working things like that and it's a different kind of stress but then I think about it I told my wife I have to take a step back and tell myself to calm the hell down because 15 year old Omar would be like what is wrong with you dude you read comics for a living <laughs> calm down life is not that bad like when I'm stressing out because I lost a video or something right mm-hmm. I have to take a step back and think what would 15 year old Omar say for sure and it's and it's mind blowing This is is different, but, you know, kind of a similar path. I remember listening to a podcast and Dak Shepard was talking about how he had to kind of check himself because he realized, you know, if he had told a younger version of himself that he, you know, released, you know, was able to direct a big budget, you know, Chips movie, his younger self's first question wouldn't have been, what was the box office? (laughs) 
but he, you know, was used to you know working in a, in this field where you were governed by your box office, and if it wasn't good, you failed. And he's like, I needed to check myself and say I got to do something I loved that I was really proud of, and that a younger version of me would have been like, that's amazing. So I, you know, obviously, you know, the, the money matters, but he also was like, I have to take a step back and understand that I get to do something pretty cool. I was, um, I talked to, uh, who was, I interviewed Jimmy Palmiotti, and I remember him telling me, like, you know, uh, I think this was last year when I had him and his wife Amanda Connor on, and they were talking about, he was talking about, you know, you, you do what you love and the money will come. Mm. And I thought about that, right? Because I did it. Like, I remember one of the, one of the questions, it was a guy just goofing around on, in my live stream on Saturdays, and, you know, he was just like, Omar, how do I get free books? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, like, I didn't even think about it. Just kind of rolled. I was like, yeah, okay. Well, you you want to know the path I took? Sure. I busted my ass making videos, making videos when I didn't think anybody was watching, mm. making sure that I had a, a, a structure and a on my calendar. I was releasing a video every week. I put so much of myself into these videos, even when I didn't think anyone was watching or anyone cared. And I said, fast forward three and a half years later, and the right person may watch a video that you did and reach out to you. Yeah. I said, you know, you put a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and, and, and so many times questioning yourself, am I doing this for anybody? Does anybody give a damn about what I'm saying about these things? So and you don't give up. I'm curious about that. I'm curious about that part because I mean that part I, I I connect really strongly with that idea that you know you don't know if it's connecting with anyone. So while that in that first kind of three and a half year period when you're doing that, what was what was the most fulfilling part for you that made you keep going regardless of the fact that you didn't know you know you're not really sure who's actually out there who's really caring about what you're doing. What was you what was it bringing you that you felt this is why I'm doing it. If even if no one's watching, this is what matters to me and this is why it's fulfilling. Uh, it's very therapeutic <laughs> in a way to make a video and um, talk about the things that you love and are so passionate about. And I remember my brother, my brother who's – both of my brothers are younger than I am. Uh, I'm – you know, I, I guess I am in – if you're putting me in a category, I'm Generation X, right? We're this weird generation that's still stuck in this old school mentality. So I wasn't a YouTuber. I, I didn't watch YouTube. I, I – I was still going to websites to watch videos mm -hmm. and I didn't get on the YouTube thing. So my brother was telling me, he was like, look, man, this video got like 30 views, dude. That's 30 people that you reached out to. And because I because a lot of it, you know, you do a lot of compare. That's one of the hardest things that I had to learn was not to compare myself to others. Right. A lot of people think it's easy to come onto YouTube and, and make a video and then be successful. It's very difficult mm -hmm. uh, to come on or, or you know, for, uh, podcasting. It's very difficult to put yourself out there because so much of you is in your work. So much of you is in your videos, whether you're talking about X-Men or whether you're talking about Squirrel Girl, whatever it is. There's <laughs> so much of you in these in these videos that you make this content and. What kept me going was well, my, my brother saying that, like, well, that's 30 people that watched. They may not say a single thing. There's no comment. Uh, there's a couple of likes. So maybe I'll keep doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I remember getting my first uh, email probably about a year after. I, I. So one of the things that happened, though, was during the panel video. And I'm sorry I'm all over the place, but that's the way my brain works. That's a uh, 
my panel videos, the way that they started, you know, that's that's how we did it. It was me and a group of friends. And the reason we did that was because I miss working at comic book stores. And we had gotten to the age where our kids are old enough. We can come and hang out again and do things on a monthly basis, record panels for, on a monthly basis. So outside of that, I wanted to start doing something for graphic novels because it was a love that I had for this medium of collected editions. And I knew there's a following out there for this stuff because I was a fanboy of this stuff. And doing the research took me a long time to learn how to put things in chronological order, uh, what books are available, what books are out of print, how to read the catalog. It was a nightmare, but I had gone through all the hurdles and I wanted to teach things or show people uh, you know, the easier steps to take to get a good collection going. Yeah. So I started showcasing, like, I started doing videos on, like, uh, my, I think my, one of my, my very first video I pulled, I think I've told this story before, but I pulled my very first video because somebody left a comment that I talked way too much. And I thought about that, and in the end, I just said, you know what, screw that guy. So I made another video, <laughs> and, I, and I realized, man, I do talk too much. Uh, but that kind of became a thing. People then I started making haul videos, and people were like, "Man, can you focus on this one comic more instead of you know?" Because uh, I want to know more about this book. I really like your insight. Mm. So then I started doing overviews of books, like just if I was getting you know thirty books a month or whatever they are, I would pull just random books, mainly omnis, because that's what a lot of people came to to, to really like that format, and. And talk about them in 10-minute – try to make them 10-minute videos when they turn out to be complete sometimes. <laughs> so, dude, if it's X-Men, I'm like 30 minutes and I have to edit. I'm like, man, what is this fool talking about for 30 minutes? This is freaking X-Men Eve of Destruction. It wasn't that good of a story. Anyway, um, <laughs> I so I, I started making that kind of content mm. and that kind of evolved into uh, – you know, getting more, more and more people commenting on that those kind of videos, uh, and then I started doing something that I wish someone had done for me. That's the kind of content, right? Like I wish someone had made these videos when I first started collecting, and so I started doing the monthly upcoming collected editions. Mm-hmm. That was a that was me just taking my spreadsheet that I created myself from different websites where you can pre-order books from. And sharing it with people. And I remember thinking, man, if 500 people watch this, I guess I'll make it a monthly thing. And it kind of blew me up. And it put me up. That and the reading orders would put me out there. Mm-hmm. Like, reading orders are, again, a video that I got. What I would have loved to have seen a video on YouTube. Granted, I didn't watch it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> 10 years ago on how the heck to put these books and what's not available? What hasn't been collected? What's missing? What are the missing issues? Things like that. 10, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, whenever I – oh, my god. The nightmare of putting Flash by Mark Wade and oh. Jeff Jones together in those skinny trade paperbacks because we didn't have much back then. Mm-hmm. Now they've made things easier with Epic Collections. I told David uh, from Marvel, I'm like, you're taking my job, man. Those <laughs> Epic Collections are making it easier for me to put reading orders together. Uh, but that's – that's what was the question? Oh, I, I don't know if that was a question. It was just kind of a it was a, it was a stream of consciousness about how you kind of develop the more of the more of the content. Oh, yeah, yeah, and um, and one of, and not a lot of people are lucky in the fact that I got to work from home a lot. Um, I used to travel a lot for work, so it limited the amount of time that I could put into videos. Mm. Um, I I ended up shifting to another position because I missed a lot of time with my kids, and I wanted to be part of their lives, so. 
I started working at this other company that let me work from home, and that was awesome. And when the kids went to school, I was, you know, with my team virtually, but I thought, wait, I've got time now. I want to make some more content. So that became a, let's make an everyday video, because it used to be, it went from one video a week to three times a week, and then it became an everyday thing. And I thought, this is so fun. And I'm getting a lot of feedback, and people are really enjoying this. No, I guess one kind of side effect of, as you said, like now that it's kind of like your full-time gig anyway, but I think by developing these different types of content that have kind of their own regular monthly cycles or whatever, uh, that you end up developing this kind of pipeline of stream of ideas and some things that you can constantly kind of know what the next thing is going to be as opposed to having to kind of sit there and be like, what am I making a video about? Like you, like, by having series, it's a lot easier. I mean, it doesn't make it easy, like totally easy, but at least it simplifies your life a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I have like different segments because I will tell you what, I mean, uh, uh, dude, the, the, the pandemic really put me to the test. Not just me, but a lot of a lot of creators. And I'm sorry, that's really downplaying what the damn the pandemic did. <laughs> but I mean, as a creator of content, what the pandemic did for comics that I'm sure a lot of people are aware of, but just in case they're not, publishers, you know, DC, Marvel were not publishing books, so there wasn't anything new coming out. The ports in China stopped delivering omnis. I remember getting like Black Widow omnibus because that was one of the things that I had with Marvel. Like they sent me advanced copies of these books. Uh, I had the, had the one copy of, in America because David sent me the co- his copy <laughs> of Black Widow omnibus, and somebody making a comment. Uh, in one of my videos going, Omar, what if this is the final omnibus? And I said, crap, why couldn't it have been Uncanny X-Men 4? Because it wasn't out at the time. <laughs> Not Black Widow. But I, I had to get creative. There was no new content, so I couldn't do the, the segment of upcoming collected editions, which was one of my highly viewed videos. So I started, you know, talking about the things that I enjoyed, my favorite image comics, which is kind of an easy route, but not if you're Omar Valdivieso, because, oh my <laughs> gosh, I take these things so seriously. I, I make a stupid list that's easy for anybody to do, but in my head, I'm like, no, no, I have to, <laughs> it's like I have an argument with myself. Should I really put this book in there? No, that needs to move out of the way to make room for this book, you know. Uh, and then I started talking about Hidden Gems, which was a really popular uh segment that a lot of people like like the books that not a lot of people talk about so I brought that up and then I started doing other things and again I was able to make content every day Mm. while at that time I had a full time job and then in June it came to an end and while I was looking for work while I was depressed not finding work you know I had to hide all that and that was one of the hardest things to do as a content creator because a lot of people put themselves out there doing Mm. these things right yeah and then personal things happen in your life. And me, my mentality was always, I don't want to, you know, somebody else is having a crappy day and I want to make their day a little bit better. Mm. So I never brought up anything about me losing my job or the freaking stress that it cost the family or anything. I would always hide that. Uh, I think it came out naturally one day. So I lost my job in June and I think in September or October, somebody asked me in one of my live streams what I do for a living and I was with my wife and I looked at her and I said this is what I'm doing for a living right now 
Um, because I don't want to lie. Mm-hmm. It's just, but it was just, it just kind of came out that way. I, and I told my story about losing my job and I was like, I don't want any pity. I'm just letting you all know because I don't want to lie. Just, I lost my job back in June. It sucks. I'm trying to find a new one and well, we'll see what happens. Um, because I, I, I never like playing the victim. I hate, like, to me, I think there's a lot of bad news around the world. My job is to entertain people and with a small amount of education in there. That's the way I see myself. Speaking of entertaining people, so I feel like you've created a Pavlovian response of, of people who watch your videos. Because when they see any screen cap of a video of yours and you have a suit on, they're very excited about good news <laughs> is about to happen. So I'm curious about the kind of the evolution of doing those videos because again people see you in a suit they're super excited you're about to you know announce something uh, those announcement videos I would imagine have become again something that you obviously enjoy doing but also would generate a lot of traffic to your to your uh, channel can you walk me through kind of the development of that being a bit because that has been definitely is a part of your announcement videos is that you have the suit on and it's like you're breaking news yeah uh so that goes back the, to uh, me losing my job. I was called into a meeting with our managers, and I had to tell. Um, so that was back in when was that? April, I believe, is when that happened. So back in April, I was told my team was going to be losing my job, so I had to let go of twenty five people. Oh wow! And that was on a Friday. And, you know, that's the way I would dress for meetings. And I got a text message from David saying, hey, go ahead and announce those five Omnis I told you about. And I left work. And I remember thinking I really need a drink. Because <laughs> I'm ha- I didn't know I was losing my job yet. Mm. But I had to let my team go. And that sucks. Like, nobody... You know, it sucks to lose your job, but I think I'd rather lose my job than have to let people go, especially the people that needed that job. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, like, I need to go to a bar. Like, I can't, I don't, I don't want to go home. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to. So what I did was instead I came home, I kept my suit on, and I got in front of the camera, I chippered up, and... Yeah, I got to announce like five, seven Marvel video, Marvel Omnis coming out in 2021, 2022 maybe, uh, or late 2021. That's what it was. Um, so that's kind of how it happened. <laughs> like, it, like by just because I was in a crappy position and I decided, you know, instead of, I guess instead of <laughs> why always me and playing the victim I decided to make someone's that's what it was I wanted to make someone feel good because I remember what it feels like and I know I can't be the only one when I would look at a Marvel solicitation or a DC solicitation and I'd see an omnibus that I had never heard of before and I'm like oh my god this is the best day ever it gives me something to look forward to in whatever (laughs) month And and I wanted to do that for people so yeah that, that's how it happened, and then I and then people in the comments were, "I better see a suit every time I see a breaking news from Marvel Comics," and it kind of became a joke. And then I said, "You know," uh, and then when I lost my job, I was like, "I have so many suits because I used to be an IT manager." 
project manager, and I would travel a lot. So, okay, I guess I could use these and kind of, you know. So, yeah, people, I'm sure people that are new to the channel or whatever don't know that story, and I really haven't really shared that story, how it all happened. I think I did it maybe one time during a live stream or when we were making changes to the channel video. <laughs> so I'm sure they see me. They see me like a car salesman. They're like, what is, this is so gimmicky. It's so cringy. But there's an actual story behind that about a guy losing his or losing his team and then eventually his job Wow! and wearing a suit uh, to deliver good news to people. I always loved it. I always thought, like, I, again, I didn't know, I didn't know the backstory behind it, but, uh, you know, I, again, I, to your point, like, it, it was one of those quick and easy things, like, you knew something good was going to happen because you, you were wearing the suit. It was this an indicator that you were about to hear something, some good news about something brand new, and you, you better pay attention. So it, de- it definitely felt like a, a clarion call, and again, it feels like this Pavlovian response that I'm like, oh man, I got to watch that new video now. <laughs> yeah. And it feels like I love the people that are like, oh, man, I got to put down what I'm doing <laughs> so, and go see it. <laughs> so not only obviously, obviously Omni's are a big part of what you talk about, but obviously you've had Curtis on a lot to talk about Epic Collections. And that's obviously kind of been yeah. a, big, a huge thing, because, I mean, I don't think he thought when he started the Epic Marvel kind of Facebook group that it would balloon the way it has either that it has become this extremely vibrant community and obviously there's kind of a, a nice cross-section there between that community and your channel and people kind of tuning in to find out about epics um so what has yeah. that been like to kind of work with curtis on those videos obviously getting the information from david gabriel who we will talk about in a moment but you know being able to connect with with curtis and who has this great love of this format and being able to kind of announce those those books together i i okay for, so <laughs> i love curtis he's such a good human being um when I had time, I, I used to listen to a couple of his podcasts, the Epic, uh, the Marvel Epic, the Epic Marvel podcast. So, to me, I've always been a reader. That's, I mean, it's not to me. It's not about collecting. Mm-hmm. I think I try to make that come across on my channel, even through. Yeah, you know, I can't do it in every video, like with overviews or anything. But to me, it's about the stories. And no matter what, it doesn't have to be an omnibus format. I can get crappy trade paperbacks to fill those missing gaps or, or epic collections. I thought epics were the greatest things. I was a big pusher on my channel for epic collections. I love the idea of having something in chronological order. Granted, they don't come out in chronological order, but that's that's another part of the big uh, marketing that they do. Uh, but to have those... Um, in between my omnis and it almost feels like I have a full library or one is coming when I look at my shelf of Iron Man or Captain America man there's so much of that stuff (laughs) and more to come so I can't remember how it happened I would get announcements like you know David uh, Gabriel lets me have advance um, notice of so many things and I kind of wanted to share the love man because you know, what's, what's the point of, of, of life if you can't share it with your buddies? So I remember I messaged Curtis and I was – I can't remember what we did. We did a video on upcoming Marvel comics or something and then I, I wanted him to be part of this amazing like experience of getting to share good news with people. Mm-hmm. So I said, hey, do you want to join me for like a live chat? We can talk about these upcoming epic collections. And I don't um, – and he was like, yeah, man, that sounds great. So, so I would hand him a list. 
So it was like, it's so funny. Like I give them, like, I, I was like, as soon as they get Marvel's blessing, you know, I'll, I'll send you the list. Um, and you know, they were like, yeah, go ahead, uh, share it whenever you want to. As soon as they said that, I give them the list, give them a couple of days to prep and then he'd come on and we do it. And it became, it became really fun. He became a big part of that. I love, I love his insight on this stuff on, you know, what's missing, why they decided to go a certain route, what, what issues he would have added. And it's a lot of fun to have him on. And like I said, it's more about like sharing, you know, sharing this thing that we get to make people's day. Granted, a lot of people probably like it, it's split, right? Sometimes people are like, yeah. And then other people are like, why did they choose that? I love that. That is one thing <laughs> from being here, being in the middle of all this is having to hear the good and the bad and the griping. It's hilarious, man, <laughs> because on this side of things, it's, <laughs> it's the it's the same kind of copy and paste comments of, oh my god, I'm so tired of this old stuff being printed. Come on, Marvel, you release more things than the Silver Age. And I swear, it's the exact opposite when I make an announcement of something new. Are you serious? Are you serious? Why can't we have classic stories collected in omnibus? <laughs> and I'm stuck in the middle. Like, I don't even reply back. It's just funny to see this all-out war between people that love the, you know, the old classic stuff, the Silver Age, the Golden Age, but hate the new modern stuff or anything past the 80s after a certain point. And then the people that just love new artwork that, like, find Jack Kirby's or big John Buscema's art horrific. And they're like, oh, gross. I don't want any of that old stuff. Give me something from the 90s on up. <laughs> and me, I like everything, so I find it kind of funny that people are arguing over these things. For sure, I always find it funny when people argue about about epics in particular because we know we're getting them all eventually. So it's kind of like, so <laughs> like if you if you buy the line, great. If you don't, like I I have certain cutoffs. Like there's, I won't buy. I don't really care a lot for Iron Man of the Silver Age, so I kind of say Bronze Age up. And if they bring out a bunch of silver age that's fine i will take a pass who cares eventually it's all going to be filled in eventually unless i'm going to die in the next like five ten years i'm probably fine <laughs> i think you're good i think you're good i mean i sure hope so i've tempted fate now so i don't know <laughs> didn't we all in our 20s though and our teens oh my God, and some of my 30s but <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that's the way I feel. I think eventually I mean, there is an end game to a lot of this stuff. Uh, I sold my Silver Age, what was it? My Silver Age, Iron Man, Thor, Omnis, my Hulk Omni, uh, Daredevil Omni years ago because I saw they were putting out more and more material in epic format. And I was doing math. I'm like, wait, they're releasing two Iron Man a year. That means by this year we'll have blah, 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 whatever the math was at the time. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. And people were like, how'd you sell your Omnis and go for the Epic? And I just, I think I broke a lot of hearts when I said I didn't need Jack Kirby's artwork in oversized format, but. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it is interesting, though, because you bring up a, a fascinating, like, there used to be no way to get certain comics in, in any format. And then we would get one and you'd be like, thank God I have it in this format because this is all they're ever going to do. And then they come up with more and more formats and it gets to the point where there's so many formats and for all different tastes like now they have the you know the kind of smaller mighty marvel masterworks now that have started so i asked yeah, my son man. like you know do you want any of these i'll buy them for you so i showed him the spider-man one he's like well dad don't you have this in that epic and i'm like i also have it in omnibus but that's not really the point like do you do you want this he's like i don't think you need to to dip into it again i'm like okay but like you can so i looked and i'm like well fantastic four is that would you like this he's like do you have it in any other format i'm like actually no he's like then yes 
So I, <laughs> so I gave him the Mighty Marvel Masterworks of the Fantastic Four. He's just been pouring over it this week. And then I actually felt bad because I'm like, the next volume's not out for like a while. Like I, everything else I've had to get, I've given my son has come from like this library that I've maintained and I've had multiple volumes and that if he wanted to read something, he could keep going. Like Amazing Spider-Man, besides the stuff that hasn't been printed, I have almost like all from like issue one to like eight whatever they're on now so you know with only a few noticeable kind of uh, blips in the middle so this was the first time where I was like I don't have anything else do you want me to buy you an epic he's like no it's a little too big for my hands I'm like okay <laughs> you're gonna stick with the Mighty Marvel Masterworks but again I'm glad it exists I remember when that line was announced a lot of people were complaining I'm like why if it's not for you it's not for you it's for someone else yeah absolutely and if it sells it's going to sell it, it, it's you know and if it doesn't sell they'll end the line exactly and and I think that also comes from years of, you know, being in this, being in in the collected editions, uh, just knowing what what's happening, what knowing what trends. Like right now, I think one of the biggest things is <laughs> from from my end is the the changing of the spine. Oh my God! Uh, yes, for, for the Silver uh, Age and some of the Bronze Age, and you know, I don't have a full list of books that are going to be changed, but I. Just from my guessing, I think it's going to be Silver Age books that didn't have a picture on the spine. And there is a legitimate reason. I just can't say anything as to why they changed it, why they decided to change it. Uh, But, I mean, there are other titles that are going to be affected, too, like Uncanny X-Men. I mean, when when a volume five comes out, I mean, how do I put it? Decisions have to be made. Are you going to buy it or see to me? I don't know, man. Maybe it become because of the way my brain is and the way that I have collected things. I have limited edition things of video games, limited collector's editions of video games, mm-hmm. and then video games. So spines never really bother, bother me, but I get, I get it. It legit bothers people. But oh my gosh, there were some people that were just furious. Like I wasn't expecting that. But me, I show. I made the mistake of showing the spot on my Saturday show. I did not expect it to get screen grabbed and shared immediately. And then within 24 hours, I had over 170 messages through just wow. social media, emails, and from anywhere from most most. And I mean, I'm serious. Most were really civil. Like, hey, you know, this isn't cool. I'm an old time collector. And then to the outrageous. I'm burning everything to the ground. And, <laughs> yeah, and you get to a certain age, you you take people serious. You never know who's kidding. You know, you never know anybody's mental state. True. So, say somebody saying that they're going to burn their collection to the ground, and maybe this is this is the straw that broke the camel's back. So I played it safe. I was like, man, they, you know, don't do that. Just donate your stuff or sell it. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't know if that man has a family and. You know, his wife left him and he lost his job and this is it. This is so. uh, But yes, anywhere from that to like I said, most people were civil. And then I would get messages from the other side of, man, I love the new spines. I'm a new collector or I love the new spines. About time Marvel made a change. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, you know, um, the negative voices always. They always. It just over talk the, 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 the voices that are like I'm okay with the spines uh, so in my comments I had to like I had to jump in one time and say hey keep it civil I don't care 
if you like them, if you don't like them, or you don't care, just be nice to each other. That's it. For sure. Because I mean, it got to the point where people were insulting each other. How can you like these things? Or mm. how can you not like these things? Yeah. And it's all subjective in in the end. But I don't. I think you know. It just it shows the passion of a true collector when they're getting that upset. True. No, I have a question about omnibuses. Um, because I don't remember, maybe I just wasn't paying attention to the, that kind of space when it happened. But I mean, I don't have a lot of the kind of older omnibuses, but I still have a number of them. I remember getting them originally and liking that kind of the texture on the cover um, that, they, that they used to have before they kind of went with a matte finish uh, back in the day. But I don't remember there ever being a discussion about when they switched it or ever hearing anyone get upset about it. Do you recall there being ever any kind of fervor way back when? Again, this must have been, I don't, I don't want to say a decade ago, but it might have been. Do you, know, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was part of the Marvel Masterworks forum at that time, and I would chime in from time to time and listen to them. And of course, there was griping. You know, we become creatures of habit, mm. or and the older we get, we get more and more like that. But I think you know there was like, well, why are they doing this? Why would they change this? I don't want the picture. I like the because. An omnibus was pretty much an oversized masterwork. Yeah. I mean, masterwork still has that fake leather look finish to it. And that's what we used to have for the omnibus editions. And then they started putting art on board. And I mean, if you take a step back and just think about it logically, of course this is to save money. Mm. Right? Of course this is to make sure that the omnibus is still going to cost us 100 to 125 dollars the same thing can be said about the pages right the, the thin pages that they're using um now some are thinner than others though but to keep costs down you know i mean we all know what's going to happen we all know that there's going to be a price hike we know that even you know here in a couple of years we're probably going to maybe not even a couple maybe sooner we're going to be paying 150 dollars for these books i mean dc has been doing that for a little while now sure. uh, but Mar- marvel has to with some of their golden age omnis there was a price hike with everything else. The epics are getting a price hike. Looks like it's going to be forty four ninety nine. I mean, they've tried to maintain the pay the what thirty nine ninety nine for a long time. It was thirty four ninety nine for a while, and then it bumped up to thirty nine ninety nine. And we were there for a while, and now it's I think starting in twenty twenty two. Some of the books, half of the books I saw solicited, um, are forty four ninety. So we know they're coming, but. As a Canadian, I could say that hurts a lot more. Uh, I know, man. Every time I talk to Curtis, he's like, "No." Yeah, we, every time I talk to Curtis, man. Yeah, we have uh, we have our own problems because we have the you know we used to have like places like Amazon and stuff used to have really steep discounts when the Canadian dollar was better. I would say the Canadian dollar has actually been a lot stronger in you know the last couple of years than it was for the years before that, but it hasn't really normalized the prices. So we routinely get you know just crazy. We don't, we, we don't have a, a discount retailer like DCBS or that kind of stuff either, or these like on right. uh, in-stock trades or stuff like that. Like We don't have really an option like that because if we were to order from there, the shipping is just an insane – and like I don't fault the, the, the retailer because that's just the cost, unfortunately, of, of mailing stuff you know north of the border. It's insane. Um, but it just means that we don't really have a, a cheap, affordable option. So often, you know, Canadians always feel like we're on the outside looking in with our faces pressed against the glass as you guys are, like, getting all these deals. And I'm like, oh, my God, I wish. <laughs> yeah, and then I'm sure it's a big old smack in the face when Americans are like, oh, man, they're going up to forty four ninety nine now. I have to pay $30, mm-hmm. you know, with my discount. I always... Um, 
I have a lot of European watchers, a lot of people from Australia, and most of them, UK, most of them are, yeah, what I wish for to pay the prices that you all have. <laughs> and I always joke back with them going, at least you guys have free health care. You know how much I have to pay for my kids and I for insurance just in case things happen? <laughs> it's ridiculous. That is true. It's interesting. I remember uh, in the early 2000s, so the Canadian dollar was really bad. Um, so I remember like the price of a comic. I can't remember what it was in U.S., but I used to pay like three ninety nine, four twenty five, and this is like 2002. And then in 2008 or nine, when the Canadian dollar got up to actually par with the U.S., so suddenly we were paying U.S. cover. So everyone in the U.S. was complaining that books kept going up, and I was like, this is so much cheaper than it's ever been for me to buy a comic. This is amazing. Um, and so, like, I, it was just this interesting dichotomy that we play with this currency conversion that you guys don't have to worry about. And so we, we were, you know, for a while there, we had this giant reduction, and I was so happy. But I did feel bad that, you know, everyone, everyone south of the border was very upset. <laughs> it's a... Uh... It's crazy because we don't think about those things, you know. We don't because even in the crazier part, the crazier part about all this, man, is that some of these books are printed in Canada. Oh yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like it's going here to get shipped back to you all, and like DC, DC ships their stuff out of Canada. That's why sometimes you see books being sold in Canada sooner than they are here in the states by a couple of weeks. That's right. Definitely does happen. So I have a question. So we've talked about a bit about the different types of content that you have, and I will get back in a second to the the, the David Gabriel of it all, um, because that obviously is a very interesting kind of pipeline that kind of came about and has been, I, I would say, you know, a, a big assist with some of the you know the videos, etc., and this amazing kind of relationship that you've been able to strike up. But before I get there, I do want to talk about. I mean, obviously, you have done interviews with creators, and I I, I don't think you do maybe a ton of them, but you definitely do, do have had some big names on your show relatively recently. Um, how do you approach getting that kind of talent on the show, and how do you kind of focus and prepare for them? Oh man. Um... As someone who has done a lot myself, is more why I'm though I'm How always curious I, to understand what other people's processes. I've never had this question. This is a really good question. Uh, I, thanks, man. Most of the time, I get the same kind of questions, so this is cool. Okay, so how do I approach them? Where I had a podcast. Oh my god, dude! I, my podcast. Oh, I don't know. I think we had a faithful from 2005 to 2010. 11 I think we had a faithful listen listening uh, uh, fans of about 30 people <laughs> that's the way it felt but I remember a long time ago when I was in high school I always my, my motto was like if you pretend to be where you're like like you're supposed to be there things just kind of flow your way and I remember for the podcast and, I, and this all ties in together for the podcast um our first year, we went to BotCon, and that's a Transformers convention for people that don't know. And the voice actor of Optimus Prime was there, Peter Cullen, mm. who was one of mine and my buddy Dan's heroes growing up. And I just went to him and I said, hey, uh, Mr. Cullen, we have a podcast, we have a huge following, <laughs> and we'd love to have you on the show. And he was, the first thing he asked, he, I remember he said, what the hell's a podcast? And I said, good question, I asked the same thing. So... <laughs> Uh, we got him on the show I had to talk to his um, his agent and we got him on the show and when we started doing this 
I started I started reaching out when I when I got a certain amount of viewers that wanted to see some creators on because I've I've, I've used to do interviews for uh, our our podcast. We had Joe Quesada on, mm. uh, we had uh, Peter David on, and you know we, we we did different creators, and that was that was always easy for me to ask like. Hey, I'm a big fan of your work. I would love to have you on to talk about some things whenever you have some free time. And we used to send out emails, my wife and uh, my wife and I, to try to get people on the show, uh, on this show. And then it kind of it kind of just where we stopped. I kind I didn't have the time to start reaching out for interviews. And one thing I was told uh, by somebody that has a big YouTube channel. And was trying, you know, he, there, he was trying to give me some tips, and I really appreciated that. But he told me not to do live shows, and he told me not to do interviews because they don't, they don't give you that money value. They don't. You're spending an hour interviewing people, and you're making three or four bucks off of it. Mm. And why would you want to do that? And I remember in my head thinking, well, that's some good advice, but I'm gonna do things the way I want to do things. And if I want to talk to a creator, that's what I want to get. That's what I want to do, because it's not just about the money. It never was, and it is now. But I still want to talk to creators. And yeah, sure, they don't they don't bring in the money, but it's a lot of fun, and and the viewers enjoy it. And how I handle the interviews, how I prep myself, dude, I don't. Really? I I prep myself. The, I will tell you, the only person I've ever prepped myself to talk to, the only person was Elvira. Really. Because I was gonna, I, I had to mentally prepare myself for that interview. I was like, "Don't screw this up. Do not say anything stupid. Get ready. You gotta be met, like, you gotta be mature about this. You gotta, you can't be fifteen year old Omar. You gotta, you know, you gotta uh, ask the right questions. You don't ask anything stupid. That was the only one I prepped for. Even Chris Claremont. Mm. Um, I never. It, it just kind of comes out because it's nat. It's just a. You do it so often, right? Like you do it so much, and I'm talking to you. Um, you can't see me. I'm moving my hands. But, uh, <laughs> the you do it so much that it just kind of becomes second nature. And talking to people to me has always been second nature. I talk a crap load, but I but I like listening to stories. Mm. I like listening to other people uh, tell me, you know, how they got from point A to B to C, whatever it is. And that's the way I've been. That's, that's one of the things my wife has always noticed about me, that I'm really good and laid back and people open up to me. Mm. Uh, and I think that's that's how – yeah, and that's how I conduct interviews. Interesting. I conduct – you know, with the, with the respect that they earn, right? Like these are creators and they're giving me the time. For sure. So, of course, I'm not going to go crazy and ask them stupid things. But I do want to know some things, you know, from my personal – like I, me, like that's you know saying questions that I've always wanted to ask them, and then what fans, what some of the viewers want to know. For sure, I remember a couple of years ago, I was doing an interview. I, I was very excited. I got Mark Wade to agree to do the show, and I, it, it was a weird way of getting him to do the show. I had been a big fan of his work on the uh, Crossgen series Ruse way back in the early two thousands. Absolutely adored that book. I got um, Mike Perkins and Butch Guys to talk about it, and I was like trying to get Mark Wade to talk about it, and thought that might be the hook that would, you know, because what could Mark Wade want to talk about? He's talked about everything, but I thought maybe he hasn't talked about this book, so that was the hook to kind of get him on the show. 
So I was lucky enough to get him, and he seemed to have a good time. We had him come back again, and I, I had this one line where I mentioned something about Kazar, and I, I could I could feel his eyes rolling on the podcast because it became very clear to me that he's like, uh, people have given him so much grief over Kazar over the years. So I was immediately I had to like you know clear the air and be like, no, no, I love your work on Kazar. He's like, I think you're the only one, and I'm like, okay. So I, I, I got him. Come, I, on there. Part of me. I said it had Andy Kubert on art. Well, I exactly. Love that stuff. So I had him come back and just to do an episode about Kazar, um, and uh, it was that was an interesting one because he basically said that like you know he met Andy Kubert in like a, I think they were in like a hotel foyer and he was like oh we got to work on something and Andy was like Kazar and he's like okay <laughs> like whatever Andy Kubert says I guess I'll do that <laughs> which to be honest is one of the like I, I my favorite part about talking to creators is finding out those types of things those weird backroom stories about, you know, this person knew this, or this person wanted to do this, this is why that book even got birthed into existence. More so, sometimes, I mean, obviously I want to know about the work itself, but there's just something about the, you know, that behind the scenes, which is so, I think as someone who, again, read comics, and you knew about the stand soapbox and the, the you know, the, the bullpen, even though it was a myth, you still want to hear about what was really going on with these guys, and that's always really exciting to find out. Yeah, man, I, I, I agree with you. I think a lot of the behind-the-scenes stories, because these are people, um, I remember one of my favorite conventions I ever went to was, um, and I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Wizard World, but the first time they ever had a VIP meet and greet, they, like the, they, they didn't know what they were doing. The creators didn't know what they were doing. We were put in a room. I, a friend of mine had just gotten back into comics again. This was 2003. Oh, wow. A friend of mine found out I was back in the comics, and he was like, "Dude, we're going to a convention." And I said, "Awesome! I love doing those when I was a teenager." So we went to Philadelphia, and they did this VIP signing. And my heroes that I grew up with when I was a teen, you know, were there. It was Mark Silvestri, my favorite artist. Like I love that man's art. Uh, Jim Lee, Andy Kubert, uh, Adam Kubert, Joe Kubert, uh, Alex Ross, Joe Quesada, Mark Way. They were, you know, they were all in this room. And it was like they kept looking around for guidance and we the fans. And then it was just kind of like eating a bunch of snacks with the creators while they signed books. <laughs> I didn't take anything to get signed, but my friend had a freaking wheelbarrow of books. So I just stood there and talked to the creators. I talked to Andy Kubert and my favorite – one of my – two favorite memories out of that. Uh, one of my favorite things was Jim Lee – uh, coming up to Mar uh, Andy while Andy was signing my friend's like 80 books of X-Men that he took with him and he was like Andy he, he whispered I, I could hear him and he's like what's 1602 about you remember 1602 oh yeah for sure Andy Cooper did with uh, Neil Gaiman oh yeah and he was like I can't tell you that man you know that he was like come on man it's me Jim <laughs> <laughs> And this was about a year before the, I think the book uh, came out. I think the book came out in 2004. And and then the other, and probably my favorite, okay, top three favorite convention experiences was waiting in line for Joe Kubert to sign something. Uh, and in front of us was this gentleman who had this amazing sketch pad that he would take to different artists and, you know, get them the draw sketch something really quick and this is the legendary Joe Cooper so Joe Cooper looked at this guy and I say this this guy was probably in his 50s and he's like alright who, who do you want son and the guy looked at Joe Cooper and he said how about a ghost writer and Joe Cooper 
started looking up and he's like, Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider. <laughs> and, and, and Adam goes, Adam, who's his son, is sitting next to him signing autographs and, and doing sketches. He looks at him. He's like, Dad, you know, the guy with the flaming skull. And Joe Cooper looks at the guy with the sketch pad. He goes, oh, yeah, that guy sucks. You're getting a Sergeant Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I will never forget that. <laughs> That's too funny. I will never forget that. That was such a fun experience. And, you know, with, to have this legend in front of us talking about Ghost Rider sucking. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, man. So yeah. when, I, when I do have, I mean, when I've been able to talk to these creators, what I find... Uh, is my kind of prep, if you can call it that. Um, I remember a couple years a couple years ago they shut it down, which made me sad. But they used to have uh, Comic Book DB, one probably my favorite website, um, because it was all this amazingly kind of chronological. Basically, everyone's every creator's work you could chronologically find it. So I would always kind of scan over whatever whoever I'm about to talk to, just to familiarize myself with everything they've ever worked on. And some of these legacy creators, you know, they've worked on everything. So I'd be always I'd always be looking for something weird to kind of pick out because I always wanted to make sure that no matter what I did in the interview, they're probably been asked most of the questions many times. But I wanted to make sure there was one thing that I would be able to talk to them about or ask them about that they probably have never been asked before. So that's always kind of my, my go-to is making sure, because I could probably just have a quick chat with them and talk to them about, in generalities, about their work and then, you know, take what they say and then kind of zero in on that. I'm good enough at this at this point that I could do that. But I always wanted to have a little bit of an extra kind of nugget that I wanted to kind of focus in on something that would be strange but weird, but maybe something that they've worked on before that was so kind of forgotten that they could kind of expand on. Because then you... You know, it, it establishes a different level of rapport because, like, oh wow, you remember that thing? And I'm like, yep, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> and you never know how that'll work out. I mean, now this this is a little different, but uh, I've had a lot of conversations with Ron friends. I've been very lucky. Um, you know, we've I've probably talked with him over ten hours at this point. But uh, at one point, uh, we were talking about a backup he had done in the Clone Conspiracy Number One that I absolutely adored. And so I was, I was talking to him about this backup, and I was zeroing in on this one panel. And he's like, Adam, this was the one thing that I pushed for, and it was something else in the script, and I pushed it, pushed it away and thought it was the wrong call, and I put this forward, and then I ended up going with my vision. But this is, this is purely me. This is my thing. And, I'm like, and he's like, I'm really glad that you noticed it. And I'm like, I did love that thing. I didn't realize, obviously, that it was something that came directly from him, but that again, was a really nice kind of touch point, and I got to learn a lot more about him as a creator, about, you know, if he felt really strongly about something, he would just do something different and hope that he could, you know, sway the editors to go with his vision, which they did. Oh, man. Which, which was cool. That's, I mean, I, again, That's I, really cool, man. I've been lucky. Again, Ron Friends is probably, you know, the person who spent the most time on my podcast because he did a book back in the uh, late 90s a next as part of the mc2 line i don't know if you're familiar with a next or not um but it was something i always loved it was the kind of next generation of the avengers who was set in the same time period as spider girl uh, those 12 issues always meant a lot to me so i remember reaching out to ron i'm like would you do a creator commentary going through the issues he's like sure so we got through it about two hours we'd only talked about six issues and I'm like you got to come back. We That's gotta, awesome. We got to finish the rest. He's like, okay. And then I emailed him. I'm like, do you think? I know that he doesn't want to do podcasts anymore. But do you think Tom Tom DeFalco would come on and do the next six issues with you? And he's like, I don't know, but I'll see. 
And so we did another two, two and a half hours of me, Tom, and Ron talking about this collaboration that they did together. And one thing that I learned that through doing that, that conversation with them was that that book, because Tom DeFalco at the time was writing three, three books set in the MC2 universe, he was writing Spider-Girl, uh, J2, and he was writing A-Next, because he was doing all three... Uh, he let Ron do a lot more of the plotting on A-Nex, so a lot of what is in A-Nex is more coming from Ron than you would normally see, uh, because it was le- you know more, he was developing more of the plots as well, as opposed to how they usually collaborated. So I didn't know that at all when I started this, you know, five-hour, you know, discussion of this book, but it was something really special, and I, I realized that that's probably why he was willing to go as deep on it, because he had more that he put into it. But again, I would never would have known that if I hadn't asked. Man, that is so cool. And okay, so both the Falco and, and Friends, like to me, both both of those guys, that's the guys that I think need proper omnibus collections. So when people ask me like, what, what kind of things I want to see, of course, uh, dude, I want to see uh, the Falco Thor, uh, the Falco Fantastic Four omnibus, a Spider Girl. Mm. Spider-Man yeah, it's it just those kind of things are the things I want to see of course X-Men I'll take X-Men any day <laughs> but sure. we're you know those are the classic stories that I enjoy and you know the Falco's up there is my top five favorite creators of you know like oh, yeah. run, runs on Thor like mm-hmm. his run on Thor is phenomenal his run on Fantastic Four is phenomenal not a lot of love though I don't know why yeah. Probably because he, I think a lot of it has to do with the '90s, right? Like Mark Grunewald's run, for example, gets a lot of you know. There's this whole misconception that his run is nothing but Cap Wolf. Yeah, but his run on Captain America is freaking stellar. I think he, he's he's given more slack, I think, because uh, Grunewald was on it so long um, that ten years. Yeah. yeah, so he was on it so long that. It, you know, he's kind of like a Peter David on the Hulk because there's some of that stuff that's actually not that great, but on the whole, oh, it comes off smelling better. And I think uh, that, that for the most part, I would say that's generally true of Grunwald. I I think Grunwald, especially with more of the Marvel kind of projects on TV and movies, kind of mining from his work, he's getting more respect as a result, which is good because I think he. He, he deserves it. Um, I actually, it's become one of my questions when I talk to these creators who've been around longer now, especially ones who worked in editorial or worked in the offices, is that I always ask, you know, for their favorite Mark Grunewald story. Um, because, like, I, I, I obviously didn't ever meet the man. I was born in 83. He died in, what, 95 or 96. So, like, you know, yeah, like, there's not a lot of crossover there. But I feel like um, his methodology and the, the continuity that he kind of pushed forward with the handbooks, et cetera, and really pioneering that, I am a child of Grunewald um, in the same way that I would say Brevoort is because I think they come from the, the old Grunewald school of continuity and I was kind of raised in that period even though I never met the man. And so I have this kind of reverence for everything that he touched and the more I find out about them, the more personal anecdotes and stories I get to find out, the more he just seems like the most... Like it's such a, obviously everyone agrees it's a tragedy that he was taken away far too soon. But I always wonder, you know, a lot of people have said he probably would have been an editor chief at some point uh, if he had survived because he was the soul of Marvel. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, there were a lot of things that he was behind, and I, I think about him particularly this year uh, because I'm the age that he was when he passed away. I'm 43 years old. That's so that- crazy that that's how old he was because you see pictures of him and he yes. he feels older. Like, you know, he, he always... I, I, thought, I thought the same thing, too, man. But, yeah, he was a very young man. I mean, I guess it was just... I forget the exact date, but I guess it was, what, August the 12th, I guess? So we're about a week uh, after that now. Uh, when he... Because 
there's an anniversary because it's his death, Michael Ringo's death, and Joe Kubert's death all Joe in the Kubert. same day. Different years, but all in the same day, which is like the saddest day in comic history. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I thought about him this year more so because I'm the, the yeah. I, did, I wrote a little tribute to him actually on our social media because I don't know, man. It just, it, you know, it hits you mm-hmm. because back then when he died, I was in. Co- I remember when he died, I was in college. And when I was reading, I was I was getting away from comics, but I would go to the local comic store to try to pick up an issue here and there just to see what was going on. And I saw one of the Marvel comics, probably X Men. It just talk about his passing, and I thought immediately of his Captain America and his Squadron Supreme. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so let me ask. You, this is a question I asked a friend of mine. Um, whose whose death? So not their life, but whose death? Do you think? Uh, had more of an impact on comic history, uh, Michael Ringo or Mark Grunewald? I I would ask Joe Cooper, but again, I think when he died, his legacy was already cemented. Like you know, we weren't losing; we were obviously losing a talent, but we weren't losing a lot of future work. Whereas the other two were still in the prime of their lives. So, which one do you think would would have been the biggest loss for the comic industry? Between oh wow, between Grunewald and, and Ringo? Yeah. Not an easy one, and it's kind of a sad no, question. That's, but that's, it's... that's tough. Man, this is a t- that, this might be the toughest question tonight. Oh my goodness, <laughs> I, I don't know because you know it all depends on on taste. Like, yeah, Grunwald was ten years into writing Captain America when they needed a rehaul. Got Mark Wade to step in. You know, he was he was on his way to becoming editor in chief. It definitely would have a man. I don't. But you know, if he if he had, I don't think we would have had things like Heroes Reborn. Exactly, I don't think we would have. I don't think I don't think Mark would have let that happen. I don't. I think he would have rather die in bankruptcy than then let things like that happen or selling off the IP of these characters to Sony to Fox you know I don't know how much pull you would have had but oh god bless so it would have you know Marvel needed that bankruptcy I hate to say it to to get back together to what it was you know if if mm-hmm. not for that we wouldn't have had Marvel Knights we wouldn't have Bendis uh, on Daredevil Things like, like Ultimate Spider-Man, things like that. So maybe Ringo, in a way, because he was still young and and had so many more stories to tell. For sure. Yeah, probably Ringo. Yeah, I mean, Dar- we lost Darwin Cook at a young age too. Though. That's true. Yeah, that's true yeah. too. It, it, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's interesting. I feel like it's more visceral when it's an artist because. There's just something more tangible to it. I don't know why, and I don't know if that's fair. But I think there's just something about it because, like, when you had like a Michael Turner die, or you know, one of these types of creators who have a very, especially when they have a distinct visual style, you feel like you're losing everything that could have looked like that. If that makes sense. Uh, whereas writing is different because it ends up being so tied in with whoever the artist ends up being, you know, illustrating your book. I always think about uh, stuff like, uh, actually, you, you kind of mentioned it earlier, but kind of Grant Morrison's run on X-Men, or new X-Men, I think I would have liked it more if I had liked the, some of the art more. Um, I am specifically thinking of the Igor Cordy stuff, but, you know, and I feel like for many years when I was younger, I don't think I could get past it. I don't think I could divorce the two from each other. And I mean, comics should be a melding of the two, but I think it was really hard for me to separate 
you know, the writing that was happening on the page versus, you know, the art that I was getting. And there's a few projects that I remember in and around that time. Like, I had uh, Chuck Austin on my show last year, and I don't remember particularly loving that X-Men period. I think I got out of Uncanny uh, just before Kia Asayama. I can't remember the artist's name. But yeah, Kia Asayama. Yeah, before they came on the book. And I remember I would flip through it at the store and be like, I don't, I don't want to read this. But I feel like part of me wonders how much of that, again, was tied in with me not liking the art and then not being able to see the storytelling or not being able to see the scripting for it. And actually, and I'm sure you would say this is maybe true as well, is that when you talk to a creator, you start to maybe not forgive and forget, but I think it's easier to go into a comic that maybe you didn't like before based on the writing and start to see something you didn't see before. And I think it's partly because no one goes into anything trying to write a bad comic or a bad movie or a bad TV show. And you start to see the stuff that maybe you didn't see before. And I think Chuck Austin was a big revelation for me, especially because I love his most recent work with Pat Olive, which is on uh, Edgeworld for uh, Comixology, which I thought was a brilliant uh, five issue series with which they're going to do more later but I think again being able to talk to him and it was an interesting one because again he knows what X-Men was for him he knows how people feel about it um, I don't think there's any way he couldn't know so I had to kind of be like so X-Men huh like kind of like you know not wanting yeah. to get into it in a, in a way that was negative but also being like that was obviously something that happened and again I think I came away from, from it with a bit more of an appreciation yeah, and I always think about that too. Like you know, there there are certain runs that I'm not a fan of, and I've made myself, uh, you know, I'm pretty I'm pretty vocal about the things I don't enjoy. <laughs> so when people are like, "Would you would you ever interview uh, Brian Michael Bendis?" Absolutely, one hundred. He is a freaking phenomenal human being. And just because I don't like you know some of the things that he's done. Most of the things that he's done, but hey, I'm, I'm in the I'm in the minority. People love his stuff. People, Ultimate Spider Man got so many people reading Spider Man. Daredevil got so many people re- reading Daredevil. New Avengers was the flagship title in Marvel for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I I can admire the man and appreciate what he did. Uh, but yeah, I would love to talk to him. So I, I think about that. You know, there there are certain runs on Wolverine I have not liked. He's my favorite character, and I don't think that Daniel Way understood the way. Wolverine was supposed to be written and it's it's it's, and you brought up a good point I mean Chuck Austin you know notorious for being you know if you ask most people that have been reading X-Men for over 20 years which is what's their least favorite run probably most would point to Chuck Austin Mm -hmm. but he did do a kick as uh, what was it the War Machine book with art he did the art in the War Machine book too yeah, that was yeah. that was kind of his 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 first big calling card uh, that kind of got him all the other writers, all the other books. Yeah, uh, then he went over to manga for a while. Remember, he started doing some uh, American manga for Tokyo Pop. That's right. He's done a lot of stuff. He was again, he was an interesting guy because he's one of those guys who kind of he left comics and he didn't really need to come back, but he did anyway. And uh, and again, this is his most recent project. I do highly recommend it. I I loved it. I thought it was really interesting. Actually, I was able to talk to him and Pat off together and separately as well uh, when that book was coming out. So again, it's called Edge World. Um, and w- on the last one, we kind of again got to do a bit more creator commentary, really digging into it, which I realized is something I really love to do. Um, I really love to actually kind of be able to kind of go through something with someone, and be like, okay, well, what were some of the thought processes? Uh, it makes me 
kind of read things differently. It makes me read the art much differently and see the pacing differently. Um, again, not that I'm, tr- I don't get paid for any, you know, sales of edge world. So don't please, you know, don't anyone get upset about how much I'm going to talk it up for a second. But what I found so fascinating about that was because it was a comicsology exclusive and something I'd never thought about was the fact that because it was a comicsology exclusive and obviously they have guided view, everyone knows that, but the way that they wrote and drew the story was informed because of guided view. They knew that the page flips were different. They knew that people would use just the panel view and that that would give them jump scares or jump moments in a way that you wouldn't get on a printed page because your eyes could instantly see everything on the page. So even if you don't mean to spoil something, you might. Whereas suddenly with these this guided view, it really allowed them to play with that in a way that they couldn't if they were tra- dealing with traditional comics. So I had never thought about that for a Comicsology exclusive. And now when I read Comicsology exclusive, that's what I'm thinking about, is how effectively are they using the guided view technology to create different types of page flips that you wouldn't get normally because you can do panel to panel instead of page to page. Yeah. Huh. And with- you said their work is on Edge World. The book is called Edge World. Again, it's, it's and, you, and you recommend this. I very much do. It's it's a sci-fi book, um, but it's got some great character work. If you're a fan of Pat Olaf, if you liked him on Spider Girl or Until Tales of Spider Man, uh, I think Tales. I think you'll enjoy it. I mean, he is he's his way of pacing um, and actually his character acting, the way that he portrays the characters and gets them to emote, I found was so fascinating on that book. Again, using the guided view as a way of kind of stimulating that as well. Uh, so I highly recommend it. I really dug it. Um, I've enjoyed it a lot, and I can't wait to see more of Edge World. Again, I don't get paid any kickbacks here. <laughs> no, I, I'm always looking for something new to read, and I'm okay with giving people, you know, more chances because uh, it's no Draco, but I'm, I'm looking it up right now on Amazon Edge World. Okay. Um, Another thing I'll mention, so and again, that one is for the moment more of a digital. I don't think they've released a, a paper-based version of it yet. Yeah, it looks like Comicsology is the only way to get it right now. At the moment, yes. I, although I think if you have Amazon Prime, it's in, you can read it through there. Yeah, um, which is nice. Um, that's one thing. And then another thing I'll say is that in the, on the topic of kind of people leaving the industry and coming back. So this is one of my most recent interviews. One that I really enjoyed it probably one of my favorite I've done in a long time is that I was always a huge fan of Zeb Wells I always thought he was really cool got some great stories uh, Dark Rain Electra, uh, Batlin' Jack Murdoch I just love these stories Robot Chicken that, exactly, yes. And, and other other uh, other work as well in, in the TV field. So I had done an interview with him about five years ago, and he was done comics at the time. So we kind of went through his work, and I, I was, you know, maybe puffing him up a little bit because I loved his work. And that was no hyperbole. These are some things I'm really proud to have on my shelf, and I just love to go back to them. So I remember asking him at the end of the interview if he would ever come back to comics. And he was kind of, dis- not dismissive, but kind of thought, I think that door is closed. I don't think it's ever going to happen. So a few years later, suddenly he's back in comics. And I was like, oh my yeah. god, Zeb Wells is back, he's doing Hellions, you know, a, a book that I'm loving. It's so good, yeah. Such so a good, good such a good book. And then obviously this summer we hear he's doing Amazing Spider-Man again, but he's like the new showrunner uh, during this new Beyond Amazing uh, era, era. And I was like, whoa, I, I gotta have Zeb back on the show. So... I, you know, as prep for the interview, I'm like, well, I'm going to listen to my last conversation from five years ago. And I don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing, because now in my mind, I've just talked to him like five minutes ago, because I've heard it. But he hasn't talked to me in five years, so he probably has no idea what he said. So, like, almost from the jump, I'm like, okay, 
you know, you're back in comics. What happened? What changed? But we ended up going really in deep about kind of his mental health, how he felt about it as being a writer. When he was first in comics, he felt like an imposter, and so he put so much more stress on himself. Once he left comics, he was able to, to grow as a writer working in TV, and then he finally felt like he could come back, and Nick Lowe ended up being one of his, I guess, his you know people he, he talks to a lot because he was his editor way back when. Now Nick Lowe's the Spider-Man editor, and that was kind of his inroad back to comics. And uh, what I really liked is that he is a fan. And when you talk to him, he loves continuity, he loves comics, he just loves it all. And so he was talking about how he was at a Marvel retreat uh, a couple years ago, and uh, Hickman was there, and they were talking about that they were going to do an X-Men retreat. And he basically tried to invite himself to the X-Men retreat because he was so excited about like House of X and all that stuff, and he was such a fan. And that's eventually kind of how he got to, to Hellions. But that was an interview I really enjoyed because, again, it felt like, because in my mind... I had just talked to him, I was able to really go maybe more deep in personal areas than I should have, but he was more than game. And I just loved being able to have that kind of give and take with someone that we could really, you know, have an interesting conversation. <laughs> Man, I, that guy, I always worry about having, and I, I do have to get going after this. Yeah, sorry, I know I've kept you so long. No, no, it's okay, my wife reminded me. Um, I don't know if you have the same issue as I do. I always worry about having uh, funny people on, mm. like people that are funny. You get somebody like Jason Aaron. Like Jason Aaron writes these like huge, over-the-top, just barbaric kind of characters, right? Mm-hmm. And he looks like a biker. But he is the most mellowest guy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like when you talk to him. Um, but then I think about like uh, funny people. Like, genuinely, their books. I love their books. Like Chip Sadarsky, we had him on. And I, and I worry, like, oh, my God. Okay, there's a small chance that, you know, Chip Zdarsky, because you see him on Twitter being ridiculously funny. You see his work. You know he's got, you know, he's hilarious. But what if he's just, like, really, really, like, you know, just plain Jane? <laughs> yes or no? Makes it a really boring. So you want to joke around with him because you think you know them because of their work. So maybe I should prepare myself more <laughs> now that I think about it. I, I will let um, you go in a moment, but I will tell you a quick Chip Sadarsky story. So okay, sure. yeah. a couple years ago, I guess it's probably about four years ago now, I was interested in trying to get him on the show. So I was reaching out to him and I finally got in touch with him. And I was like, you know, I'd love, I'd love to, you know, interview you, et cetera. I think I had maybe mentioned that I'm from Toronto because obviously he's from Toronto as well. He's like, oh, you're local. I'm like, yeah. He's like, well, do you, you know, do you want to, do you want me just to come to your house? I'm like, oh, okay. So my wife was on a cruise. And so I'm like, all right, come over. So Chip Sadarsky shows up at my house. I uh, sits on my couch and then we're just, you know, chatting for the, for this interview. And it's, you know, it's really fun. And it's, it's, it's very mellow because we're just kind of two guys sitting on a couch together, very informal, uh, in the middle of the interview, my son, who at the time would have been about three and a half, kept, keeps walking down the stairs being like, you know, Hey dad. I'm like, no, no, go, go to bed. And so every time my son would start to come down the stairs, Chip would look up, he'd see him cause he was, he had the better vantage point to see the stairs. And he would just look at me and be like, we're a PG podcast now. And I'm like, Oh shit, my son's back. And I have to bring my son back upstairs, put him back to bed, come back down and keep talking to Chip Sadarsky. And the entire time, all I could feel was he's going to leave if he's done. Right. Like, cause we, we talked about three hours just sitting there on my couch. And the entire time I was like, 
I hope he doesn't feel like he's stuck here. I hope he feels like he can leave. And, like, so the entire time, I'm just in my head about, this is so cool, I get to talk to this creator I really wanted to talk to, talking about all sorts of stuff and really kind of big things, small things, uh, you know, very philosophical things, but also kind of writing things and art things. And it was so much fun. But at the same time, I hope he doesn't feel like he's stuck. (laughs) He is allowed to leave my house. So whenever I ever interview anyone now, they're like, well, how long do you want to go? I'm like, well... I've had Peter David for 20 minutes, and I've had Chip Zdarsky for three hours on my couch. Anywhere in between is fine. So that's, that's your range, the Peter David. And Peter David is a – I know I said I had to get going, but I do have to – I love people like Peter David because you never know what you're going to get. Peter David can be in a good mood and be one of the greatest interviews you've had, or he can be in a bad mood, and you have to turn it. And it's so much more difficult to turn it when you're not in person with somebody. Mm. Whenever you're – you know, we are miles apart. You're in a different country than I am, and it's so hard to get a read on people sometimes, when, especially if you're not seeing me right now, right? You don't know if I'm, what kind of day I've had. I remember running uh, – We've been. I've interviewed Peter David for my podcast when I had it three times. One time he was in a real bad mood, mm. and I had to kind of turn that, and it was so hard to turn it because he was on the phone. Mm. That's right. We used to have Skype on phones. <laughs> we had to call. I remember that. Anyway, uh, and then once uh, for near me condition, I went to a show, and he was cold. I asked how he was doing. He was really grumpy, and then immediately he opened up. Whenever I brought up like Fallen Angel, when he realized that I was not just a guy that wanted to you know interview him for mm. the sake of interviewing him, but because I was also a fan, and you know, I, I think people like that make it interesting. For sure, you and you're right. There, he can be a little cold. That was a tougher one. I, I, I had the same type of experience, but you know what? You learn. Um, I do find, and I'll let you go. And, and I promise this time. Um, okay. But one thing I have found, and for better or for worse, I always think of you know the uh, in the first X Men movie when Rogue sees uh, Wolverine's claws and she's like, "Does it hurt?" And he's like, "Every time." Every yes. time I do an interview, I always have butterflies. I've done, like, hundreds of them. I should not be nervous at all. But every time I'm about to hit that call button, I'm just like, oh, my God, I hope this goes okay. And actually, I will tell you one funny story, and then I promise you, I, okay, I'll, go I'll let go you ahead. go. Uh, <laughs> I was doing an interview with, oh, now I'm forgetting his name. Den- um, was it Dennis Hopeless? Who was the one who uh, who did the amazing uh, run on Spider-Woman when she was pregnant? Was that Hopeless? Yeah. That's hopeless. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a, a double interview day where I was going to talk to Hopeless in the morning, and then I think around noon or maybe it was early afternoon, I was going to interview, interview Christos Gage. So I was really excited about both. So I did the, the one with Hopeless, and then in the middle of it, he had to go. Uh, There's someone with his kids. He's like, you know what? Can you call me back in like a couple hours? I'm like, sure, I still have time. So I call him back in a couple hours. We finish up our interview. I have maybe a 10-minute window between the end of that one and when I start with Christos Gage. So right as we're ending my interview with Hopeless, I start getting extremely ill. I don't know what happened. Uh, I hadn't really eaten anything that should have provoked a response. But suddenly I felt so ill. I was starting to have like shakes. And I, and he, and I was like, we, we ended the podcast. I'm like, I got to go do this interview. But I'm starting to feel really ill. He's like, well, good luck, man. I'm like, all right, thanks. So I have this interview with Christos Gage. And it's going to go about half an hour. We get to about the 25-minute mark. I have a coat on top of me. I'm shivering. I'm shaking. I'm not feeling well. Trying to get all the questions. I think I have two questions left. I'm right in the home stretch. I've almost done it. I've almost made it. So I ask him this question. And he starts giving this response. And I feel myself. And I go, nope, this is happening. I put, I, I mute. I mute. <laughs> you mute him? I, I, no, I mute. I mute. I, I can't remember what I stopped. I muted it so that he couldn't hear me. And I start throwing up on myself. 
because I I can't I, I, I literally cannot move. I am shaking. I'm listening. I'm trying to keep everything going for the podcast. I just start throwing up. I'm so ill. I don't know what happened. It came out of nowhere. I can hear Christos Gage still answering the question. He's giving the, a, a brilliant, articulate answer. I cannot hear it at all because I am so in a different world. And then finally, I stop and I I'm just like okay. So I I, I, I unmute myself and I'm like. Christos, I'm so sorry. I need to end this. I'm actually extremely ill. Can we pick this up in about a week or so, or whatever it was a good time for him? He's like, yeah, sure. He had no idea. Um, and so I have, I, I don't know if I have it anymore, but for a while I had the recording of listening to myself basically <laughs> just, just vomit as, as Christos Gage is giving this thing. So eventually I have Christos back on. We end with that, like, literally it was like a five-minute question, and then he was done. And then I was like, you know, Christos, I'm going to tell you, this is what happened. And he laughed so hard because <laughs> it's a very human moment. He's like, that's pretty awful. I'm like, yeah, it really is. He's like, well... Was this worth the wait to get the answer to the question? I'm like, absolutely, Christos. It was great. <laughs> I, I love his writing, so I would have done the same thing. That's awesome. That's different, though, because, damn it, I'm on, on live video, so if I need to throw up, everyone's going to know. That's true. Including people watching. <laughs> oh, God, that was so much worse. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, though. It would make for good content. You never know with YouTube. That is true. Someone would be like, oh my God, this is amazing. Let's blow this thing up. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much for taking so much of your time. I know we said like an hour and we we streamed right past that a while ago. So I really appreciate okay. you coming on and talking about your channel. I didn't even fun, I, I didn't even get to the David Gabriel of it all somehow. So I guess maybe someday we'll have you back on to talk about that amazing relationship, that how that kind of blossomed. Sure. I know that you, I know that you talked about it on the Cave of Solitude podcast with Eric as well. So I know it's at least out there where you've talked a little bit more about uh, how that relationship started. Yeah, man. Uh, anytime you want me back. This has been a blast. Been a lot of fun. Excellent. Thank you so much, Omar. Thank you, man.